Our text today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 36. First Corinthians seven, verse thirty six. We'll try to put this verse in context in the sermon, but this is the verse that we will be focusing on. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not, let them marry. This is the last installment that I've planned for the series on family, on the family, and the second uh, sermon on preparing for marriage. A blessed marriage is not a mathematical equation whereby we simply add one Christian man plus one Christian woman and it automatically equals one blessed Christian courtship, engagement, and marriage. Any view that puts its confidence in the means of courtship alone is trusting in an institution or is trusting in the right person to guarantee a blessed marriage rather than in the Lord Jesus Christ who alone can bless that relationship. Courtship and marrying a godly spouse are important pieces of the puzzle in working toward a good marriage. But neither courtship nor marrying the right person will automatically solve all of your problems in marriage. Such a superstitious view of courtship is ultimately trusting in our own efforts rather than trusting in the grace and in the power of Jesus Christ. For dear ones, you still have two sinners, even in a Christian marriage, you still have two sinners who daily need to be looking in faith to Christ and his word for help and for encouragement. Good marriages do not simply fall out of heaven into our laps and without any effort on our parts. It is true. Good marriages require much effort, much time, much sacrifice on our parts. But never forget, never forget that good Christian marriages are ultimately the result of God's work of grace in the life of two sinners. This Lord's Day, we continue to consider the matter of preparing for marriage. For if we would properly prepare our children or ourselves for marriage, we must note the following main points from our text this Lord's Day. First of all, the supervision of fathers. And second, the well-being of children. The supervision of fathers and the well-being of children. Looking first then at the supervision of fathers, notice in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 36, the phrase, 
let him do what he will. Let me read that verse again, but notice that phrase, let him do what he will. The whole verse says, but if any man think that he behaveth himself uncommonly toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not. Let them marry. The question of who provides the oversight in the lives of a couple who are interested in one another is one of the significant issues that uh, separates biblical courtship from modern dating. In dating, the couple themselves are expected to oversee their own actions while they are alone. However, in courtship, it is the father together with the mother who provide the loving oversight in the relationship prior to marriage, doing what they believe will be best to help the couple to maintain purity in body and purity in mind until marriage. Now, such a view of parent-supervised courtship runs directly counter to the popular practice, uh, sadly to say, even amongst most Christians today. The general trend today in most Christian churches and homes is in the direction of allowing the children to supervise themselves while on dates. Listen to the following words of uh, Josh McDowell, who is considered by many to be one of the leading authorities on matters of dating. He says in his book, How to Help Your Children Say No to Sexual Pressure, page 116, he says, let me emphasize that the standards for conduct we're talking about must be the child's own standards based on his or her own convictions, not our standards based on our convictions and forced upon our children. You should certainly have input but the final decision in most areas ought to be left with your child. Well, we're not so much interested today in what Josh McDowell thinks or what Greg Price thinks about this matter. What we want to know is what God, speaking in his word, reveals about this issue. Beginning with verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul addresses certain questions that relate to those who are unmarried, here called virgins. The term virgin refers to one who is not only unmarried, but one who has remained pure from all immoral sexual intimacy prior to marriage. So often in our ungodly culture, the word virgin, whether it refers to a male or to a female, is scorned and ridiculed in everything from music to movies, from sex ed classes to, to one's own peers. Virgins are made the butt of jokes. They are treated as if they are stupid and uneducated. However, let me assure you that in God's view, whose view ought to be 
most important to us, remaining a virgin until marriage is a most blessed gift granted to you by God's wonderful grace. The Lord uses the term virgin to refer to that blessed group of Christians, the 144,000, who are preserved faithful to Christ during the time of great tribulation and apostasy in Revelation 14.4. This is what is said concerning these virgins and the blessing that is theirs. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. God is not belittling virgins. He is exalting virgins. Even though that may be virgin in a more spiritual sense, it can't help be applied to the moral sense, to uh, sexual intimacy prior to marriage as well. In fact, uh, we are called, all of us are called to be virgins in our relationship to Jesus Christ, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning with verse 1 and then reading through verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Nothing again of scorn and ridicule with regard to being a virgin. It is something to exalt and to rejoice in. We are called to be pure to Christ and not adding human innovation to the doctrine, worship, and church government that Christ has given unto us. We are called to be faithful and pure to Christ in embracing the glorious gospel of salvation apart from any human innovation Not trusting in our own righteousness to save us, but trusting in Christ and his righteousness alone to save us. We are called to be faithful and pure to Christ in loving his commandments and walking in obedience to them out of gratitude for all that Jesus Christ has done for us. Hollywood's view of virginity is not God's view. For Christ said, that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Luke 16, 15. Let us not take our cue from Hollywood, but from the Lord our God, when it relates to this all-important subject. There's more and more pressure 
amongst young people today to forsake their virginity. Young people, may God give you always the grace to stand, to be faithful to the Lord and not compromise in that area. Once it's lost, it's lost. And many present today can attest to that. Once it's gone, it's gone. That is something that you will always prize and cherish to be able to offer to your spouse on your wedding night. A chaste virgin. Make that, make that by God's grace what you strive for. Some of us may not be able to go back and change what has occurred. But by God's grace, we can teach our children what is right and what they ought not to do. They can learn from even our mistakes, our failures, as those who were young at one time. By God's grace, we can teach our children the ways of truth. Here was the battle for purity in the body begins with purity in the mind. Controlling what you allow yourselves to see, hear, and read. You're not only to flee temptation by waiting until you are in the very clutches of sexual temptation and then running as quickly as you possibly can from it to avoid it. You are to flee sexual temptation most of the time by refusing to put yourself into situations where such sexual temptations will entice you in the first place. Most of the time, dear ones, if you have reflected on this, most of these sexual temptations will occur when you are alone or by yourself. Therefore, I encourage you, make plans not to be alone in isolated situations with those of the opposite sex, whether you are younger or older, whether you are unmarried or married. If you have had problems with sexual temptations that present themselves to you on TV, then watch TV with your family. Don't watch it alone. Avoid being uh, tempted when you are by yourself. If you've had problems with sexual temptations that present themselves to you on the internet, then keep the doors to your room open so that anyone can walk in to where you are and see what you are doing. If you haven't learned this blessed safeguard yet, learn it now. Having others around is a great deterrent to sexual temptation and sexual sin. Having others around, not being all by yourself and alone in those situations. How the devil, the flesh, and the world conspire to suggest to us One look, one look isn't going to make any difference. One look will not send you spiraling into some sexual sin. Remember, this was what the devil also implied 
in his temptation to Eve. Just one bite. One bite is not going to make any difference. One bite is not surely going to bring death upon you. However, it did. And it brought not only their own death, but the death of all posterity descending from Adam and Eve by ordinary generation. It is the little foxes that are able to get in there and spoil the vine. Dear ones, purity begins in the mind and in the heart with a desire in our hearts to be pure. Praying that God gives us that gracious affection of purity. Asking the Lord to give us grace where we struggle in that area to overcome that particular sin and not putting ourselves in unnecessary situations of temptation. Make a covenant with your eyes not to take even that first look. Establish a safety net around you by being by not being alone. Perhaps by having accountability in various ways. Beloved, let us hold high the word virgin and never be ashamed to be called such for the cause of Christ. Paul's discourse concerning virgins, beginning with verse 25, focuses on the practical benefits. Note Paul says in verse 25 that this is not a a divine or apostolic command that he is making with regard to virginity. I mean, with regard to remaining, it is with regard to virginity, but not with regard to remaining single. That those who are virgins may, in fact, become married. And the practical benefits that he mentions, one he specifically mentions, is that one who is single uh, does not have to concern himself or herself for a wife, a husband, or children in times of distress and calamity and persecution, he says in verse 26. And so there are certain advantages at that point to being single. Also, one who is single can more fully devote his time, talents, and treasures to the extension of Christ's kingdom. This is implied in verses 32 and verse 33. But in verses 36 through 38, the apostle makes it clear that a father who has an unmarried daughter at home may either give her in marriage or not give her in marriage. Notice these verses in verse 36, the phrase, let him do what he will. That implies certainly that the father has that power to give consent or withhold consent. Let him do what he will. Notice in verse 37, it says, but hath power or literally authority over his own will. He has authority and power in this matter with regard to granting consent or withholding consent. And then finally, in verse 38, it just says that with regard to the father, he giveth in marriage or he giveth her not in marriage. 
And so, again, just the way that's worded implies a parental authority in this whole matter. God is saying through the Apostle Paul that it is the father's responsibility together with the mother to give his blessing and consent to the marriage of his daughter or to the marriage of his son, for that matter, or even in certain situations withholding his blessing and his consent. It is by no means a decision he makes without, however, the input of his wife and of his daughter or son. When a father is asked at his daughter's wedding, who gives this woman to be married to this man? He is not going through some meaningless ritual. He is, in fact, fulfilling his responsibility of loving oversight in indicating his and his wife's consent to this marriage. That is necessary for children, particularly under their parents' roof and authority. That is necessary. This loving oversight of the father may also be inferred from the biblical account of Adam and Eve's union in the Garden of Eden. From the very beginning, before there was ever a human father, God, as the ideal and heavenly father, brought Adam and Eve together giving, if you will, Eve away to Adam. When God created Adam and Eve, he did not first allow them to date for a while and then leave the decision up to them as to what they wanted to do, whether they wanted to get married or remain single. Nor did he create several men or women whom Adam and Eve could date. Courtship is to have as its goal, dear ones, marriage. Not just, not just shopping around. Not just playing the field. That's not the idea of courtship, it, though, though it is very often the whole idea behind dating. Obviously, then, no courtship should be formed or entered into without first thoroughly examining the young man or the young woman as to there being a suitable husband or wife for your child in areas relating to both the spiritual and physical life. God is their father, supervised Adam and Eve. He gave Eve to Adam, and Adam willingly received Eve as the will of his heavenly father. Note also the examples of fatherly supervision in the case of Abraham, who sent forth a servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. Genesis 24. There's also the case in Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. And I'll let you look that one up. But there again, we see that fatherly oversight in a particular case. Now, it may be objected. Cannot such authority on the part of the father be grossly abused? Of course, there is always the potential for abuse of authority, whether it's in the home, in the church, or in the nation. But the potential for abuse in the matter of parental supervision is no more warrant to avoid courtship than the potential abuse of ministerial authority is warrant not to unite oneself with a faithful church. 
Any good gift from God is potentially at risk of being abused, whether food, wine, clothing, money, or authority. Any good gift can be abused. The answer to the potential for abuse in matters of courtship, engagement, and marriage is not to take away the lawful exercise of authority out of the parents' hands, but to instruct parents in the lawful and loving exercise of authority over their children in these matters. I would submit that parental authority may also be abused by doing nothing at all and allowing one's children to make disastrous decisions without your consent and blessing. Decisions that they will live to regret for years and years to come because parents did not step in and did not exercise any authority. I'd say that's an abuse of authority as well. It's not using authority as one ought to. Again, someone may object by saying, Paul is not directing his words to fathers in the matter of all male-female relationships prior to marriage, but only to the matter of marriage. In other words, he's not talking about courtship. He's not talking about uh, engagement. He's talking about marriage, you know, giving your consent to marriage specifically. Now, although it may be true that the apostle does not specifically mention the word courtship, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, verses 36 through 38. Nevertheless, we ought to infer the Father's loving supervision in courtship by good and necessary deduction. For if the Father, according to the Apostle Paul, has responsibility either to consent or not to consent to the proposed marriage of a son or daughter, which is, I think all would agree, the most significant male-female relationship that a son or daughter can enter into, how much more he has the responsibility to exercise loving oversight in all lesser male-female relationships leading up to marriage. In other words, if he has responsibility to consent to that which is greatest, doesn't he have also responsibility to consent to that which is lesser? <clears throat> Does this loving uh, super, supervision apply to sons as well as to daughters? Of course. According to passages like Jeremiah 29.6, where it is the responsibility of fathers, it says, to take wives for their sons as well as to give their daughters to husbands in marriage. To take wives and to give daughters. So, his responsibility applies both to sons and to daughters. Remember, dear ones, God supervised Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and Abraham sought out a wife for his son Isaac, and Manoah sought out a wife for his son Samson, as examples to be followed. Does the need to be supervised in male-female relationships apply not only to young people who are still under their parents' roof, but also to adults who are no longer under their parents' roof? Yes and no. 
Yes, adults also need supervision in male-female relationships. For in one sense, age by itself does not determine whether one is capable of falling into sexual temptation and sins. David, a man after God's own heart, was by no means a young man when he fell into sexual sin with Bathsheba. You see, dear ones, even adults, even adults need oversight and accountability in these matters. All of us do. Even adults should look for deterrence to sexual temptations and sins. How many adults have fallen into sexual sin just like young people because they did not take the need for supervision seriously? Historically, adult chaperones, even for those who were adults and no longer living at home, has been used to provide such a deterrent. Historically, that has been the case. And it's there for a very important reason. It works. It's effective. An adult chaperone is not only, there was a deterrent to sexual sin, but I would submit a protection of one's reputation against false accusations that may be brought. Everyone, when there's a chaperone, whether you are younger or whether you are older, as, as a single person who's looking for male-female relationships and courting, engagement, and up to marriage, everyone, I suggest to you, benefits from this arrangement. No one loses. No single... On the other hand, single adults, for example, those in their 50s or 60s, do not have to rely upon their parents for supervision in the same way that children do who are living at home. So here's the distinction between younger people. However, I would suggest that it is appropriate for even adult children to seek their parents' input and blessing upon their contemplated engagement and marriage. That is simply an issue of showing, it seems to me, showing honor. Honor and respect to your parents to desire their blessing upon your marriage, no matter how old you are. Just as there is a change in the relationship of a child and a parent when the child becomes an adult and moves out of the house in regard to submission and obedience, that same direct authority over a child has to be loosened. There are decisions that that a child, once he leaves home, is making for himself that you are no longer involved with. There is a difference between a child who is under your roof and one who live, uh, leaves home. And so, likewise, the same thing applies to those with regard to supervision, parental supervision in male-female relationships. Parents will not have the same kind of oversight in adult children who have long left home as they do 
with regard to children who are still under their roof? Will they be concerned about supervision? Yeah, they can certainly, as parents who love their children, they ought to be concerned about supervision. They can still talk to their children about that, but they won't have the same kind of authority as they previously had when they were, the children were living under the roof. However, again, I simply say that is not to indicate that principles of supervision are no longer appropriate for them as well as for those who are yet under the direct authority of their parents. As I look back over the past 24 years of pastoral ministry, I have, and I can tell you this without any hesitation, I have been involved with far more adults who had long left their parents' authority, no longer under their parents' roof. I have dealt far more with adults than with children involved with sexual sins. That's my own personal experience. And for that reason, I believe that it is, practically speaking as well, so necessary to have deterrence for all of our lives, accountability for all of our lives in those areas. The second main point is this, the well-being of children. And the, the, the point being made here, the well-being of children, is that a father ought, though he has authority to give consent or withhold consent, he ought to do so not simply for his own selfish desires, but for the well-being of his children. And I derive that principle from this phrase in 1 Corinthians 7.36, and need so require, and need so require. Look at verse 36 again. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she passes the flower of her age and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not, let them marry. The Apostle Paul in verse 36 speaks directly to the fathers who are endowed with lawful authority to give or not give their consent to their children's marriage and makes it very clear that such decisions should always be made with a view to the well-being and good of their children. It is a tyrant and not a caring, loving father that unilaterally makes such decisions without gathering the input of mother and child. <clears throat> In such cases, he is not looking out for the godly interests of his child, but rather for his own selfish interests. But how do the words of Paul in verse 36, and need so require, teach that a father's decision ought to take into account the well-being of his daughter or son? Well, in the previous verses, Paul has given the practical benefits of not giving children in marriage, namely present distress, and cares of this life. Those are the ones that he has cited. 
But now in verse 36, he states that if a father, in taking into consideration the age, when he says, and if she passed the flower of her age, so the father is taking into account the age of his daughter in this particular case. So taking into consideration the age and the need of his daughter should give her in marriage should he give her in marriage, considering her age and her need, he has not sinned, Paul says. Now, what is the need? What's the need that requires her to be married? It's not specifically stated uh, in that particular passage. I would suggest it is the fact that she does not have the gift of celibacy. Mentioned earlier by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, that she desires very much to get married. She believes this will be for her well-being. And in considering just the fact that his daughter has this, this godly desire to be married, that there is a greater necessity for her not to be withheld from marriage, even if there are times coming that will make it more difficult if she is married. <clears throat> for a father to, re to require a child to remain single when all other moral considerations are met, for example, a godly and mature young man, who is interested in his daughter or vice versa, to not allow his daughter to marry or his son to marry in such a case when all of the, those considerations are met is as much to lead a child into temptation as when a father exercises no supervision at all. In either case, a father sitting, I would su submit to you, sitting on a bomb that is just waiting to explode if he doesn't take into consideration the need of the child at that particular point and the gifts. Because as we said last week, there is a grace and a gift given to those to remain single and celibate, but there is also a gift and a grace to be married. And for a father even what appear to be good reasons, you know, I don't want you to have to suffer because of the, the, the distress that is presently coming, our direction. But to withhold and not give consent at that point is to, according to Paul, is to speak against the gift that God has given, that necessity within that child to be married. This certainly implies that a father should always seek his child's consent in courtship. Rebecca, you'll recall, was asked in Genesis 24, verse 58, Wilt thou go with this man? In fact, an engagement or marriage cannot be lawful without each person's consent, not just the parents' consent. We don't believe in just arranged marriages. But there must be a, an intelligible, rational, rational, responsible consent that can be given by the couple themselves. 
Although Paul states that he believes it to be wise for a father not to give his child in marriage at that time due to the present distresses, persecutions that are coming upon the church, he also states in 1 Corinthians 7.36 that even the present distresses do not necessarily outweigh the need of the child to marry. A father did not sin in considering the need of the child to marry in giving his blessing to that marriage. As it concerns how fathers should consider the well-being of their children in these matters, consider the words of a couple of the learned and godly teachers of the church on this text in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 36 and 37. First of all, Calvin makes this comment. The apostle, too, in requiring exemption from necessity, intimated that the deliberations of parents ought to be regulated with a view to the advantage of their children. Let us bear in mind, therefore, that this limitation is the proper rule, that children allow themselves to be governed by their parents and that they, that is the parents, on the other hand, do not drag their children by force to what is against their inclination, and that they have no other object in view in the exercise of their authority than the advantage of their children. Matthew Henry, likewise, on the same passage, states, Parents should consult their children's inclinations, both the marriage in general and to the person in particular. That is, to the person that, uh, both to his daughter or son, but perhaps to the uh, person that they are inclined to marry. Parents should consult their children's inclinations, both to marriage in general and to the person in particular, and not reckon they have uncontrollable power to do with them and dictate to them as they please. I submit that it is definitely in the best interest of both a child still living at home and an adult no longer living at home to carefully avoid all outward affection, all outward affection before engagement or marriage. For example, even holding hands, embracing in a more romantic way, uh, kissing, or other expressions I submit are expressions of a covenantal love that are to be used for those who have entered into a covenant of love at engagement and then into marriage. Save the affection for the time that a marriage covenant is engaged and entered into. I encourage you to follow the principle laid out in 1 Timothy Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. Now notice this. And the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. <clears throat> In other words, before a covenant is entered into by way of engagement or marriage, young men and older men alike, speaking to men first of all, all of the women in the church 
are to be treated as your sisters. They're to be treated as your sisters. And speaking now to the young women, or even to the older women, all of the men in the church are to be treated as your brothers. There are not to be romantic fantasies about this or that person, whether unmarried or married, just as you would not do so with your own brother or sister. Just as it would be immoral to show such physical intimacy to an actual sister, so it should be equally immoral to show your physical intimacy to anyone to whom you're not engaged to be married. Likewise, for the men. In conclusion, then, I would have you consider that these earthly relationships between a man and a woman are a faint reflection of the glorious love that exists between Christ and his church. Consider that it is the Son of God who woos us unto himself by the offer of salvation in the gospel. It is God the Father who sovereignly brings us into that union and fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are betrothed. That's the language that is used, espoused, betrothed, or engaged to be the bride of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 11.2. And although presently engaged by covenant to Christ, we yet await our marriage when we will be forever united to our Savior in heaven. Thus, dear ones, we are to walk in this life as those who are already spoken for. We are to walk in such a way that we communicate we are betrothed to Jesus Christ in our callings, in our relationships with all people, that people can see by what we say, how we live, that we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are engaged to him. In fact, our baptism is like our engagement ring in that it speaks of our engagement to be the Lord's. We belong, by way of the covenant of grace, we belong to Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us. Therefore, let us put away all other loves which would usurp his rightful place in our lives and commit ourselves fully to the love of Christ cheerfully awaiting, anxiously awaiting his coming when we will be married to Christ for all eternity. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank thee that thou hast given to us such wonderful truths that relate to us between Christ and his church. And Lord, we glory in these truths. Thou hast condescended, Lord, to show us that love which thou hast for us, that engagement that has been made and the marriage 
covenant that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we do, Lord, love the return of our Savior. We do look for his return. And we do pray, Father, that thou would help us also from these wonderful truths to be able to deduce how important it is that we therefore remain pure in our bodies and in our minds as it relates to male-female relationships. Certainly thou art able to redeem even marriages that do not begin with two virgins. How we thank thee, O God, that thou art such a great and mighty God and that, Lord, we are not cast upon hopelessness if that has happened in any of the lives of those who hear this sermon today. How we thank thee, thank thee, our God, that thou can take that which begins, Lord, in a way that is contrary to thy will, and yet, O oh Lord, thou can bring, by way of that commitment to Jesus Christ, can bring a glorious, blessed marriage from such a beginning. Father, we, however, would pray for those who are single, for those, O oh Lord, who are unmarried, for our children, that, Lord, thou would help us all to impress upon them the great blessedness and privilege of being able to enter into marriage as chaste virgins. And we pray, our God, that thou would, would bless our children, that thou would bless all of those who are single and then married at this time, whether younger or older, that thou would give to them the grace to wait upon thee. Give to them the grace to not consider that their waiting is in vain, that they are going nowhere. Give to them, O Lord, peace and contentment until thou dost bring into their lives one whom they may be united to as long as they live. Our Father, we, we do pray that Thou would bless all of our marriages. Our Father, we would seek to be those who are pure in body and mind. And that, Lord, where we have ever failed, give to us a heart of that's filled with contriteness and brokenness. Cause us, O Lord, to turn from our sin, to embrace thy forgiveness, and to press on. We ask, Lord, that thou would administer unto us all, for thou dost know our needs this, this Lord's day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.